0: Welcome to Blog Talk Radio, in High Fidelity.
1: Every day feels like Sunday morning. Still got my day job, but I feel so free.
2: Good morning. You are listening to Morning Moments with Maya Conversations of Love and Laughter. The show where each week I take the casual phrase, Hey, we should go for coffee and talk more about this. Well, I take it quite literally, and I share an organic conversation over my Sunday cup of joe with someone who is out there pushing the positive. This is your host, Maya Aziz, coming to you live from Montreal. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been talking a lot about leadership. We chatted with Mary Schaefer about the humanity of leadership. Last week, we spoke with Paul Ozenkup about humor and leadership. And today, we're going to be carrying on this theme with a conversation about caring leadership. Now, for fun last night, I looked up the standard definition for the word boss, And folks, I nearly died laughing when Google popped up and gave me this definition. Boss. Someone who gives orders in a domineering manner. (laughs) Well, we have all certainly had such bosses, but is that the only way? I don't think so. You know, I've heard it said that a manager is someone who makes you see how important they are, but a leader is someone who makes you realize how important you are. So just what is the place for kindness and compassion in the workplace? Can strength and caring coexist in leadership? Better yet, could our strength as leaders be centered in our ability to care? Mark Miller said, If your heart is not right, No one cares about your leadership skills. Well, this morning, I am very excited to be joined by someone who I'm pretty sure would probably agree. TJ Jones is a leadership crusader. With 25 years of experience developing leaders as a teacher, coach, sales executive, and director of training and development, He has led professionals through multiple corporate acquisitions and change initiatives using his belief that caring is the heart of leadership to influence and inspire their teams and organizations. Author of The Caring Warrior, Awaken Your Power to Lead, Influence, and Inspire, TJ helps his corporate clients develop a cultural blueprint where caring leads to trust, engagement, innovation and business performance. He uses an approach he calls active coaching with coaching clients and teams and has been known to describe his efforts to highlight caring in the workplace as an exercise in sprinkling his idealist dust on things. But personally, I would say that this is just the kind of essential fairy dust that we are all in desperate need of. And so what a pleasure it is for me to have him join me today for a conversation about the place of the heart in leading others, TJ, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. What a wonderful introduction. I feel great. I feel terrible.
2: <laughs> I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm so happy you could join me this morning. Me too. So, TJ, you know, I, I know a little bit about your professional background. You were a teacher. You were an executive. You know, you're. Your interest in leadership and your expertise in leadership is clear, but I want to start. I want to understand what more specifically led you to realize the importance of this notion of caring in leadership.
0: Great question. I well, I'll just start by telling you that I had a point in my career where I hit the wall. I really burnt out and. I suppose a number of your listeners can relate to how difficult it is regardless of what generation you come from to to navigate uh, to navigate the working world the pressures to make a great living the I guess the expectations of your loved ones what it is that you're supposed to do with your life but the most important thing is so much time and energy trying to navigate those waters and having been through so many mergers and acquisitions eight actually where the companies that I worked for were bought in 20 years I had 18 different bosses and I loved your definition I'd love to talk a little bit more about about the word boss and what it means but I had sort of a front row seat to The inner workings, because as the head of training and development, leadership development in particular, I worked on those surveys. I had a dotted line, if you will, to all the aspects of the company. So I had sort of an inside seat to a lot of discussions that took place before, during, and after these company reorganizations. And to be quite frank with you, it was a very seldom case that people's feelings people's lives the well-being of their families and their careers were taken into account and i became angry about it i became resentful that this is this is the world that i was functioning in and i myself saw that with all the travel and the stress i was becoming someone that i did not want to be so i think it's safe to say that i went through a dark period where I was the gnarly, uh, you know, junkyard dog who was walking through airports and at the grocery store and various places, just really, really grumpy and unhappy in the midst of so many personal blessings. And I realized it's because I feel like my heart is closing in. My success had always been as a teacher, as a coach of, of young people and football and other sports. A caring heart was what led to my success and my positive influence on people. This was the feedback I'd always received through the years. And somehow, over time, I had negative, cynical person. And I essentially put my foot down. And I had an angelic wife who called me out and said, this isn't who you are. This isn't who you want to be. You know the life is too short type of conversation, and so I decided that I was going to make some changes, and that this was going to be my mission, I was going to bring caring into the world, into relationships, into teams and into companies. And frankly, I think we need it in the political spectrum as well, but I'll leave that to some of the other experts.
1: <laughs> uh, I
2: think you're probably I, I think you're campus. probably right there. <laughs> That's a whole other show, TJ. (laughs) Um, You know, I I find I've, I've got sort of chills as you're describing this, because I think many people can relate to that experience where we find ourselves in the workplace in situations that seem to sort of almost not just contradict who we are, but really profoundly contradict our values. And what was interesting is that you had had the experience as a teacher and a coach of seeing the impact that caring about the people that you were trying to teach or coach could have. So you had had that positive experience and then found yourself in a world where that was not being taken into consideration. I'm curious, do you think the fact that these mergers and acquisitions were part of the business world where, uh, you know, I, I I don't actually work in that field, but I, I'm going to say, I think that money is kind of the bottom line. Do you think that that played into the fact that the human aspect uh, was so forgotten or do you think it's sort of a universal thing that happens in terms of management?
0: Well, I think you're absolutely right. It did and does always have to be factored in because the, the way that we live, the way that we, our economy works, we need to, we need to make money and individuals need to have the opportunity to advance themselves. And so I, I, I don't have a problem with abundance and people pursuing riches and whatever that means, but at the expense of, you know, the good of other people and the types of conversations that I was, was party to was lost along the way. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, when I was a younger frontline manager, I approached my, you know, senior level, boss, and I'll use that expression boss, pointing out that there were some things that were happening out in the field, some other, this was in sales, that were not appropriate, that were not in compliance, and some of the people on my team had brought those to my attention. So without a lot of data specifically or evidence, if you will, I just brought this to the table and said, about, it puts people at risk, booting the organization, and I finished with, it's affecting the morale of my team. And this executive looked at me and said, I don't care about the morale of your team. I care oh. about our stock. That's a direct quote. So <laughs> when the when pursuit of the bottom line and the pursuit of you know, riches and accolades and awards takes over someone's character and values and the well-being of other people, then, then it's out of balance. And I think it's fine for companies to merge and acquire others, and that's part of the world that we function in. But when people become the collateral and their families and those that uh, are integrated into their lives are affected by this, and it's, it, it's a very negative thing. And I'll share one more negative example. Meanwhile, I want to spread the love and, and, and happy aspects of all this, but most of the time it's the disillusionment that leads us to, to want to make changes. I was part of uh, one acquisition where things were fairly well planned out. There was certainly a business case for why this was going to take place, and all the plans were set. Some people who've been through this before know that there's that inevitable day where the phone rings and depending on what level you are in the company, what your role is, you have to play a part in that. You may be the person waiting for the call. You may be the person having to make that phone call. And the better this is planned, hopefully the more, you know, it's a very unfortunate thing, but hopefully the smoother things go and it's done with delicacy and grace. Well. One of these that I was part of, I had to lay some people off, you know, very heart-wrenching experience to be on any end of that, um, particularly if you're the one receiving the call. But first thing in the morning, I began making my calls. I was unable to reach, turned off all of their devices. So people are waiting to hear that they're no longer with the company and You can't reach them because the company has already turned off their devices. So these are things that, just small examples, not small examples, but examples of things that I experienced that I found just despicable and unacceptable, and I saw way too many examples of it. So I felt strongly enough that I was going to get on top of a roof and and shout it out to the world or whoever would listen that we need to care more about how we function, how we treat people, and we can still be financially successful and flourish. In fact, probably even more if we go about things that way.
2: What a great example. I'm, I'm you can't see me, but I'm jumping out of my seat with a little bit of horror at that example <laughs> Um, but I, you know, I have a question though. So why, I mean, why do these examples exist? Like the people in leadership in these companies, they're not bad people. They are often people with their own families. They are human. So, I mean, are there common mistakes that are made in your experience that lead to these kinds of situations where the human is forgotten?
0: You know, what happens in my view is it's like a moral erosion. It's gradual, mm-hmm. and it's it's now liken it to the way that we walk around nowadays on the street or in an airport. We're looking into the phone most of the time, and I say we because I'm certainly guilty of my, of it myself. Gradually, it just doesn't happen overnight, and I think that a, a middle manager, for example, who has been hurt by a a boss or someone that they reported to early on has scar tissue. They have learned through, you know, the process of growing up in whatever company, whatever industry they're in, they've learned to be more protective of themselves. And so when you become more protective of yourself, you have more of a scarcity view of things. And so part of your motivation is quell that fear that you feel to seek outside reassurance that you're okay, that you're safe, all the while being, you know, protective. And so if you're in a role of leader and you're influencing other people, but your primary motivation is to protect yourself or to make yourself look good, then you're not taking care of the people in your care. So there's a, you know, an expression I use and I write, you know, put it in the book. Are you trying to look good or do good?
2: Nice. Um, what a great analysis uh, uh, that it. you know, there is an aspect of this is that is sort of learned behavior. And as I was listening to you talk, it, you know, what popped up in my mind was it's very similar and I'm not saying that that these cultures are are bullying cultures, but it's very similar to in the school ground um, how how the influence of a bully or that kind of culture, and then. Others sort of are drawn to it uh, in order to protect themselves from then being those victims or being on the, on the hurt, scarred side. And it becomes this, this cycle. We're going to talk about how we change that in a minute. But I want to, you know, you've really done a great job of uh, describing what it looks like when, when a workplace culture is not caring. How would you define then caring leadership? What does that look like?
0: But the very simplest point of origin here, we caring is something that I believe is within all of us. There's a lot of intellectualizing that we've chosen to do over the years. Where's the data? Where's the proof? Show me the survey. And <laughs> the data on workplace trust and engagement haven't changed or certainly gotten better for nearly 20 years. And that's through ups and downs in the economy and going out of business, new industries creeping up. So people are not happy at work. Again, I sound cynical when I say that, but
1: <laughs> I just
0: you just have to look around you. And there are wonderful examples of companies that, that do a great job of this. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But caring leaders very simply are aware of their humanness and they choose to do something about it. They choose to influence others in a positive way. And that doesn't mean, you know, skipping through the daisies and, and (laughs) throwing balloons. And And sometimes when I, I get into my idealistic philosophical talk, it may sound a little bit like that, but I believe that it truly works. You know, when I told you the story of the, the leader who told me, I don't care about the morale of your team. I care about the stock price. Ironically, my team was the number one team in the, in the company at that mm. point in time. So the, the, the outlook is the company's stock price and how much I can make. But she was talking to arguably one of her most successful leaders at that point in time. And and disregarding that. So caring leadership is much easier said than done, but it is embracing your power to care, your power to influence other people in a positive way, and choosing to do something about it.
2: Which isn't always easy and can be very scary. I mean, when you were describing middle managers, um, you know, being influenced in order to protect themselves, having been scarred, I can also imagine that there's an element of fear sometimes of sort of standing up and trying to say something different, um, you know, and what the repercussions might be. In your experience, have you seen that, that people are reluctant? They They maybe know that what's going on is not correct, but are scared to say something
0: for sure I call it the meeting after the meeting <laughs> And usually there's uh, there's the hallway discussion about oh, we're going in to listen to the CEO give a speech or the vice president is going to pump us up or tell us what we're not doing right and then people go into the meeting and, you know, feel like they don't have a voice or that they're not able to speak up. And there, there seems to me that there's a continuum. If someone speaks up who is competent, cares about their people, cares about the future of the organization, but they raise their hand amidst their colleagues and have something have something very valuable to share, even if it's somewhat contrary to what the current strategy is that should be heard it should be valued in fact if anything the thriving companies have more of those types of cultures where there's a there's a respect for the opinions of the people that you bring into the organization versus more of a hierarchical view uh, a funny story that I'll share with you I'd love to tell some happy stories, but I'll I'll share with you uh, another time. At the the tail end of one of the many acquisitions, we had, as you would call it, like an integration meeting for the senior leadership, and the senior-level executive came into the room and said, we are going to talk about culture. Well, that is great. That's what we need to do because for months – Everyone's been anxious and anticipating what would happen. And it's been very upsetting. Upsetting for the individual, upsetting for the families. Who's going to stay? Who's going to go? Who will my new boss be? Things like that, which are very typical. And rather than actually have us introduce ourselves and get to know who our new colleagues would be, this boss, this, this leader went right into what the culture was going to be. I thought it was gonna be an open discussion. It was (laughs) his view of what the culture would be. And this went on for about 45 minutes and then there was a question and answer section where mostly people made general comments, excited about the future, this type of thing. I think people were holding back. And so my hand and I said, you know, this is great, and we do have a lot to look forward to. I know that everyone's anxious to get started you know, moving the business. However, our people who are essentially driving the engine have been through a lot. They've lost colleagues. They've been uncertain about what was going to happen to their career, to their future. It's affected their compensation. It's affected their relationships with their customers. So how can we pull people back together, get them excited about the new vision, Get them excited about what it is that we're trying to do. And I literally said this, focus on their happiness, which will make a difference <laughs> in their performance. And I'm not trying to sound like a martyr here, but I had the courage to say that. And then I stood there and heard crickets in the room, <laughs> and I felt, I felt like I was from another planet. <laughs> it was extremely uncomfortable. It was a little bit like a like a Jerry Maguire moment, if anyone's seen that movie. <laughs> Who's with me? And <laughs> no one said anything. And it was actually hilarious because um, the guy who had been presenting literally said, okay, let's take a break. <laughs> oh, there was oh. literally no discussion. So I, I think, you know, to the point, again, and I'm not trying to hold myself up as this, smarter but it's really a simple question i think if you detach yourself from the moment of course the people are the ones who are making the sales the people are the ones that are out there interfacing with the customers regardless of what the business is regardless of what the industry is and yet the culture discussion was all about what the boss wanted or what the the bottom line needed to be and Sure, business needs to get done. However, if you don't address the people part of it, it's weeks, it's months before you really have everybody pulling in the same direction. You know, to use that analogy of the rowing. And if you don't address that, you're missing you're missing that huge opportunity. You know, and then of course in the hallway after that, that people are elbowing me and saying, "Man." why did you say that? Or, or, dude, that was great. You know, thanks for bringing that up. Well, I thought, why did you all leave me flapping in the wind? So, there you go. What
2: a, what a great example. Um, and, and I can picture it. And good on you for having done that. Um, it's interesting. A, a guest recently spoke about something similar and said, you know, if you're If you decide if you're ready at that point where you're going to speak up for what you believe um, is this contradiction of values or to hold up the values that you think should be in the workplace, you need to be prepared for whatever's going to come next. Um, And obviously you were and others who might agree with you were not um but i i'm curious did anything was anything heard from what you said like did you ever get any feedback from the senior management that it was heard at all or was it really we're going to take a break and that's it that's all
0: well i went a step further and actually sat down with the new ceo and i knew that i was probably already on the list of we're not sure we want this guy here And so I I sat down with him and uh, he had had a discussion about how lucky we were for the performance that we had had achieved. And I said, you know, respectfully, the luck, there may be some truth, market conditions, trends that benefited us, but you have hundreds of people out there who've worked hard. And so suggesting that they were lucky may not be the best way to get them to continue, you know, working hard. And mm-hmm. he wasn't thrilled being challenged like that. Separate ourselves from the titles and the roles and the hierarchical view of things, just people. Mm-hmm. And this guy was a billionaire. And so there was a part of me, uh, I am used to be a high school teacher. Who am I to challenge this? Billionaire, this, this person who's bought and sold companies and owns a yacht in a private jet. But when you really come down to it, he's just a man like me, and he has other human beings in his care, and he has a responsibility, and his leadership team has a responsibility go first and product and profit second. I just mean, I, that is what's missing in the way that we view business these days.
2: It comes back to what you said earlier about how a caring leader uh, is really aware of their own, um, you know, humanness. Uh, which you obviously in this situation were of your own, and perhaps this billionaire was a little bit less, or certainly was demonstrating it less. Now, is that something though that you know some people just have more self awareness than others? Is it something that someone can develop and learn, or is it just that you know some people are a bit more in touch with that than others?
0: I think that we all have opportunities in our lives to discover who we really are and typically it comes from disappointment and disillusionment there are a lot of very wealthy people celebrities business moguls who are unhappy and who don't necessarily have people to share it with or don't have the respect of their former colleagues and i was a high school english teacher so i'm a little literary and philosophical about this, but to me, the companies we work with, the the products that we create, the art that comes from within, these are the stories of our life. And if you have the opportunity to be someone's manager or supervisor or director, CEO, you are part of the story of that person's life. And vice versa. And I think there's a responsibility there. And so it's not until people can mirror, to use that cliche, that they realize that that's a very important thing. Feel good about yourself. Your self-esteem is sort of at risk, if you will, if you are not proud of the way that you're conducting yourself and your relationships, Mm -hmm. your business functions. And it comes to roost. It may happen, hopefully, when you're you know, younger and, and it informs the way that you live your life and the way that you conduct business. It may happen as a result of a, you know, a, a disappointment, fired, a company goes bust, appointment or loss in your life, but everyone shares these vulnerabilities in common. And I think the people who are in touch with that accept themselves, accept the past. And I I sound like a pop psychologist here, but the people who've been through some of that suffering and have found the other side of it, they can't help but be better in their relationships and more caring with the people that they interface with, be it in their community, at the grocery store, at the movie theater, you know, popcorn line, and as we're discussing today In the way they coach and hire and hold people accountable, the way they run their businesses, to how someone lives their life. Because we have a limited time. None of us knows what that limited time is. And if you have a ton of money in the bank, but you were a horrible person to do business with, what's it all worth? And if people Mm -hmm. still view you whether you're alive or are no longer with us, if people view you as a horrible part of their life, man, that's sad.
2: Absolutely. Um, You know, as I listen to you, it's... (laughs) No, it's actually kind of beautiful what you're saying. I'm loving it. (laughs) But, you know, as I listen to you, it's obvious how sort of being in touch with the humanity of yourself and of others and... Uh, caring in the workplace is good for the relationships uh, of you as a leader with your staff and of staff with each other. But how is it actually good for business? Because I think that that's important in this conversation is that there is a benefit for the business in being a caring leader, right?
0: Absolutely. Who are frontline salespeople will will relate to this thought that your customers buy from you and trust you because they like you. And why do they like you? It's not just because you have a sunny personality and a great sense of humor and even a great product. But they, they like you and they buy from you because they know that you care. You care about being right by them, and your behavior shows that. So to me, there's an authenticity about caring where the thought tensions, the behavior, and the words are aligned, and that's true of individuals, that's true of teams, that's true of organizations. So beyond, you know, the buying piece of it, beyond that, that business aspect, within the organization, we listen to people that we respect. We follow leaders that we trust. We may have to follow people that we don't trust because we have to, but we certainly don't do so willingly. Mm -hmm. And we're loyal to those people we believe have our best interests at heart. And so I'll use you as an example, Maya. You're a talented Gen X uh, professional who made a transition into a new organization. You bring tons of experience and passion. And bottom line results to the table, and if within the first month or two months you can't stand the person that you're reporting to because he or she is nasty and you don't feel trusting, what happens to your performance? What happens to your motivation and your creativity?
2: It's down the toilet. Yeah, absolutely. Motivation, even if you still sort of do the minimal work, uh, it's not the same thing as your motivation when you actually believe in the person that you're reporting to. You're absolutely right.
0: Yeah. And so, and and I'll just carry it further and we'll say, okay, so say now that you're, you're in that same role, but you have 10 or 12 people reporting to you. How does your feelings about your situation impact those people and your ability to coach and inspire and motivate those people.
2: Uh, <laughs> I love this exercise because I'm it. putting myself right there. You know, what's interesting yeah. is that um, I think that when you're in that situation, you're in such a mode of sort of just bare survival that the notion of caring about inspiring and coaching the people below you, it's not even in the equation. You're just so trying to survive and... Get through the motions because of how you feel about your own situation related to this person above you that you perhaps don't trust or respect or um, look up to.
0: Right, and of course we cannot control those circumstances. And as I as I mentioned earlier, I had 18 different bosses in, in 20 years. Very unsettling, and a few of them were unbelievably inspirational, great role models, people that I. Still in contact with, but there were a number that were not, and I think it came down to uh, scarcity thinking, selfishness, their own fears. And, you know, this is with some perspective, but I'll just tell you one story of of the, the opposing. My first opportunity, moving from an individual contributor, quite a few years ago, into my first frontline management position the director who brought me into that role, his name was Eddie. He's a phenomenal guy. He sat down with me for two full days in a row. Now, this is someone who has hundreds of people reporting to him constantly on the phone, a million different things, uh, pulling at his time and attention. And he spent two eight-hour days getting to know me and finding out what my needs were, very clearly setting out his expectations of what he needed from me, what the organization needed, how he expected me to manage my team. And to hear me say two days doesn't sound like very much, but I ask your listeners to think, how much time have you had with your direct boss you know, setting the stage for the future? Particularly if you're in a position where you're a new leader. Have you had that much time? A lot of people would say, I don't get two minutes with my boss. (laughs) Like, check in with me, check in with me, you know, if something goes wrong. So this man, you know, when I was in my mid-20s, sat down with me for two days. And to put some more concrete specificity around this, I think this may help some people. As a result of that, in all the various changes and reorganizations, I ended up having to create and start many new teams. And so what I developed from that experience is something called the contract for success. Four is actually the number four. And so the very first thing you do, or if... You don't have the opportunity to start. You, you press the reset button. And you sit down with each individual on your team. don't know how much time this will take, but you have to devote the time. And you talk about expectations. And so I'll just, as, as long as it's okay, I'll just get really detailed about this. Is that all right? Please
2: do, please do.
0: Okay. To me, could, could, very certainly be done in other relationships as well. Roommates, marriages, uh, I think it's, it's, it's really crucial. What are the four most important things you need from me? So Maya, if you and I were beginning a working relationship, I was your immediate supervisor, you were my direct report. I would sit down with you with a piece of paper and I have a little template for this on my website, but what are the four most important things that you need from me? List them out and explain them, and we'll we'll talk about them. That's a very uncomfortable question sometimes for people. And so what you might get is a really vague answer. Well, TJ, I really, your support will mean a lot to me. I can understand that, but what do you mean by support? Because everyone explains something like that very differently. Well, I like to be able to share ideas and communicate and ask questions because while I'm super motivated, sometimes I like to brainstorm. That's how I process things. That's how I think, and that's how I I get to better decisions. So I would love that kind of support from you. Okay, how do you like to do that? you prefer to text and then get on the phone do you want to talk once a week they like, could get really detailed about those expectations and those needs and any more than four frankly is is too much because those are promises that you can't keep but really finding out what does this person need from me to be successful and then on the other side of course i'm your your immediate manager your immediate supervisor. I then also need to lay out for you what my expectations are of you. For example, commitment. What do I mean by commitment? Well, I want a full day's effort. I want you to passionately plan and strategize how you're going to spend your time, your day, take a project from A to Z, communicate effectively with the people involved, the other stakeholders that you're working with. And so, what I'm getting to is these conversations are crucial to not just the relationship but to the performance and to the working relationship in, in it because it's not just like the manager has a team and the team just goes off and does what they do, but that individual has a personal contact or connection, hopefully, with each of those individuals. And it has to be somewhat unique because human beings are unique. One of the most important things that I ever did as a leader, and I had 15 years of direct leadership experience, teams ranging from, you know, 10 to, you know, 40, 50 people and training people. You earn the, the right to have these difficult conversations, courageous performance conversations when you sit down and have these have these discussions. It's kind of like the roommate example. Let's, uh, these are the boundaries that we're going into. And the marriage, the love languages. I, I'm guessing you might be familiar with that very popular book. To me, this is almost like a professional love language. What do you need what matters to you and what matters to me? And if we talk about these things up front, Or we press reset and we have this discussion midstream, it changes the game. And if more people were doing this in more teams and in more organizations, it would make a huge difference. And that is the culture. You know, the gentleman that got up in front of the room and said, here is our culture, was kidding himself because the culture is people. It's how people feel working for that company how they feel about what they're doing how they feel about the vision of the future it's not what somebody else dictates and it never was caterists don't work
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely right i and what a what a great um you know, fairly simple way of initially clarifying and laying out expectations between a leader and the person that's reporting to them. And you're right, it does take time. And I think people don't stop to make that time. But as I listen to that, I actually think it then saves time later because you've built this relationship and you're not sort of over months. Trying, doing this sort of back and forth of trying to figure out, you know, what do you expect? Oh, am I doing what you expect? Or, or am I giving you what you need, etc, cetera, etc? Cetera. Um, it's a, a worthy investment of time. Now, TJ, I want to play devil's advocate a little bit, because I enjoy doing that on occasion. <laughs> can sure. can a leader care too much? You know, people say, oh, but you know, you're a leader. You need to have a certain authority. You need to be strong. Uh, if you're not made for that, then you shouldn't really be in a leadership role. What are your thoughts on that?
0: I think there's two, two pathways to look at that. I think when you say or when you ask, can someone care too much about others, about people, I'm going to say no. What I will say is you can have your priorities and your life out of balance and out of whack. Example would be the new manager who cares and who wants to be available for their team, for their people, but has created no boundaries around how, why, why, when what's appropriate in terms of, you know, reaching out personal time. And so I've seen a lot of the younger managers that I coached and still do who create no boundaries. And so what happens mm-hmm. is, you know, you could say they care too much to make themselves available. I want to help. I want to be available to you. And it, it's, a, it's a misuse of their energy and time, and it leads to resentment. And it leads to sort of a destructive type of situation for the manager because it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And I, I would argue, again playing top psychologist, I would argue that someone taking that approach is may reflect some of their own needs to feel needed. Um, so that's an example of you know the caring sort of getting out of whack. I think the intention is what's important. But again, if we go back to having some of these really simple contract for success types of conversations, then you you can avoid some of that. Hey, I have four children. Actually, I do have four children. And so when I would sit down with someone new, or you know, back in back in some, in those days, say let's have our conversations during these hours, and instead of the random casual pick up the phone, let's schedule once a week to talk because that's something that you and I will benefit from. If something comes up randomly, shoot me a text and, you know, we'll figure out the best time to do it. So I think you can't care too much about the people but you also have to care for yourself and care for the priorities of your life to to balance things out. And that is not an easy task. That's not an easy thing to do. On the other side, I I'm suggest, I'm guessing that you're wondering if there's too, too much vulnerability puts a, puts a leader in danger. And I think there's a great difference between, you know, my book is called The Caring Ward. And the reason I didn't call it The Caring Marshmallow or something like that is because I, <laughs> that's all I could think of. I believe that caring gets a bad rap. Caring sounds like a fluffy, soft, Type of word, but when someone leaves a boss, when someone leaves a company, someone's complaining at the island in their kitchen about their job. I believe what's underneath that is that feeling of career. They don't care about developing me or my compensation. So I believe that's, that's underneath it. But a caring warrior, a caring leader. With a fierceness, and that sometimes can come in the form of giving someone very candid, direct, even harsh feedback if something needs to turn around. Again, we go back to the expectations discussion. Well, you've essentially broken that contract for success because we agreed that this was something that.